Anytime you delegate, anytime you leave it to someone else, like a decision maker at a company you're trying to sell to, uh, you are making it less likely you achieve the outcome that you want because no one is ever going to be more motivated to get the outcome that you want than you. Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu, and thank you so much for giving me your time. I promise it'll be worth it. So today I had the pleasure of speaking with Adam Liebman, who is known in New York as a top sales executive. Adam has built sales teams for some of the largest tech startups in New York City, including Yext, which is now a publicly traded company where Adam was sales hire number one, and Single Platform, where he also helped to craft the sales experience. Adam started out wanting to be a journalist, which I found super interesting considering his career in sales. He's gone on to start some of his own tech companies and advise a number of tech startups, not only in New York, but LA, San Francisco and beyond. Guys, this is definitely a sales 101 episode and Adam dropped some serious bombs on this one. So make sure you've got your note app opened and ready to take some serious notes. Okay, let's get into the action. So, Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Absolutely. Happy to be here. So, Adam, when you are out and about, how do you introduce yourself to people? Uh, that's a great question. I, you know, normally I just start with my name. Hey, I'm Adam. Um, and then, you know, in New York, it's very common for people. Oh, what do you do? Um, you know, sales leader and entrepreneur. Um, I help sales teams move faster. Yeah, that's good. Um, so before we get into kind of like the, the sales 101 um, which is what I'm really excited about. Talk to me a little bit about early life. So where, where are you from, Adam? So I, uh, I was born in San Diego, California. I lived there until I was six. Then I moved across the country to just outside of Boston, uh, where I was from for another six years, from six to 12. Um, but I tell people I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, 12 to 18, six years uh, in the land of enchantment. Uh, great group of friends, great place to grow up, very normal upbringing. Mm. Um, and a lot of times when I'll, I'll tell people I'm from New Mexico, they're like, oh my gosh, uh, you know, you're the first person from Albuquerque I've ever met. <laughs> and you definitely are the first person from Albuquerque I've ever met. I mean, there you go. I don't even, I don't even know if I know what that is, to be honest. Southwest United States. Southwest, there, you go. there you go. Okay. So you, you moved around in six year stints, I see. And then how did you get into sales? I mean, were you always kind of like a wheeler and dealer growing up or like, what, what was that like? So uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a wheeler and dealer, but <laughs> I did have some early sales jobs. Uh, one of the first jobs I had was working for the company MCI, which I don't know if you're familiar, but MCI was an old phone company uh, back in the day when you would pay for a number of minutes and um, you know, you were charged for pie the minute and long distance calls were extra, but not after eight and all this sort of stuff. And that was one of the first jobs I had. Uh, it was a great job. Uh, fun little story. I actually, uh, I was at MCI for, for a few years and uh, ended up uh, making a phone call that led to MCI getting a $50,000 fine from the FCC. It was at the height of the do not call. And uh, one thing led to another. I had switched this woman over um, to a plan and it moved faster than it was supposed to through no fault of my own. Um, And it turned out that this woman uh, was friends with the attorney general of Arkansas, where (laughs) she was. And she wrote a letter and it got back and moved its way up through the chain. MCI got this fine. And they're like, who, who made this call? And that was me. Um, I was, I was, I think I hit 400% to goal, uh, the month before that job ended. Um, but it was, it was, it was great. You know, I think maybe from there I was, I was kind of hooked on the selling thing. Wow. Did you get fired straight away? <laughs> yes. Hey, my <laughs> boss called me up. I was, uh, I was just getting done with high school or uh, school for the day. And he goes, Adam, I've, I've got some terrible news. 
uh, we have to let you go. And I was like, what? You have to let me go? What's going on? And he was like, yeah, um, it pains me to say this. We just got fined $50,000 for one of the phone calls you made. I said, what, what are you talking about? He said, yeah, that woman that you switched over to was called the neighborhood plan. Um, things went a little faster than she thought they were going to go. And uh, she ended up writing this letter. And the next thing you know, MCI is paying 50 Gs. And they're like, hey, who made this phone call? And that, that just happened to be me. Oh, man, scapegoat. It's not scapegoat. your fault. Got to have the fall guy, right? Got to get the fall guy. And it's, unfortunately, usually the guys at the front line. Yeah, it was tough, but it was a great job. So fun. Uh, my first part was I was actually selling cell phone plans, T-Mobile cell phone plans to families who used MCI for their phone service. This was, I was 16 years old um, and it was, it was great. It was a lot of fun. And this was just cold calling, telesales. Oh man, this was telemarketing to the max. Wow. We would press buttons on our screen we would just get connected with people. If we wanted to get up and take a break, we had to log out. They tracked how long you were logged out. Huge call center of hundreds of people. Uh, but it was it was a great job. I was always a top performer. Um, it was great money for a 16-year-old. I had more money than I knew what to do with in high school. Um, and, it, and it was a great experience. So that's when you kind of had your first taste of sales. And you were like, hey, if I just work harder than everyone else, I can actually make a lot of money. Yeah. You know, listen, I, I didn't set out to be a salesperson. It wasn't something that, you know, I said, okay, I'm going to go and study sales. I actually went to school to be a broadcast journalist. Um, but you know, there was some selling experience back in, in my early days. Um, and you know, I, I'm sure that helped when I did eventually end up in my you know first sales role coming out of school. Yeah. So I saw that you, so you studied broadcast journalism and I guess where did that passion come from or where did that you know, what, what was the impetus for that? Yeah. So, uh, when I was in seventh grade, uh, we had a class, a social studies class that did kind of a fake newscast every week. And it was 1998 and you each got assigned a topic and you could pick your topic, uh, in an order. And I was lucky enough to get to pick sports. And this was, you know, maybe September, October of 1998. And I don't know if you're familiar with baseball, but that was a really special year um, in baseball because Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa had this home run battle uh, to break Roger Maris's record uh, of 61 home runs that had stood for something like 34 years. And I remember, I will never forget, I was recording on a VHS tape with my dad and my little brother, every Mark McGuire at bat, where I was hoping to get the clip of him hitting that 60-second home run and then taking that into class and kind of presenting on it. Mm. And I got the clip and I went in and I told everyone how special this was. And I saw a couple of faces light up and I, I thought, man, this is so fun and so cool to be this source of information and share this experience with people who might not have otherwise known. Could I do this as a job? And you absolutely can do this as a job. You can go and you can be a sportscaster. And from that moment on, I kind of oriented my life around trying to become a sportscaster. So I anchored high school football games on the radio in New Mexico. Uh, I became the sports intern at the NBC station uh, in Albuquerque, had my first, you know, kind of mentorship experience from those guys who I'm still close with today, uh, and then ended up going to the University of Missouri, which has a, a very famous broadcast journalism program. Uh, they actually let students report the news on the NBC affiliate for Columbia, Missouri. Nice. Uh, so you're going out to something like 80,000 homes uh, in the you know greater Columbia area in the middle of Missouri. And I got to cover the team and anchor sports when the Missouri Tigers football team was actually number one in the country. So it was very fun. It was an absolute passion. Um, but at the end of the day, when I started thinking about a career, um, it was it was a tough road. Uh, they don't really make new TV stations the same way they make new companies. Yeah. And the uh, economics are, are not so great either. I had a friend who, coming out of school in 2008, was offered a job in Flint, Michigan uh, for $19,000 a year. Wow. And I, I heard about this and I said, you know what? I, I just don't think this is for me. Trying to figure out what I was going to do. Had an offer to be an MC on a cruise ship. Uh, which was not what I ended up taking. Uh, but I saw a Facebook ad and it said, come join a fast growing company. And I clicked on the ad and it took me to this website 
with a picture of this tiny office with lime green walls. And it said the top 10 reasons to work at Alpha 411. And they were all really silly. And at the bottom, it said, if you think you could be a good media sales associate, send us a paragraph saying why. And I didn't know what a media sales associate was, but I thought those reasons were really funny. And I sent the paragraph talking about how I had been a broadcast journalism major and I you know, knew how to speak to people and I would love to, a chance to talk about this opportunity. And the next thing you know, I'm on the phone with the president of the company. He says, Adam, we really like you. We want to fly you out to New York to meet the rest of the team. I get on a plane the next day and uh, he and I met. I met the rest of the, the operation and I said, okay, let's do it and moved to New York the day after graduation, slept on a buddy's couch for the first week, um, started working, you know, a couple days after that. And I guess the rest is history. So, so this company, what did they do? Yeah. So Alpha 4-in-1, which eventually turned into what most people know as what, what people know as Yex today. Um, at the time, they were paid for performance advertising for small businesses. And what that really means is uh, one of the first things I did was launch a website called tvrepairman.com. And tvrepairman.com was a directory of television repairmen who would come and fix your TV. And what Yex was able to do was to make sure that that directory showed up on the top of the search results whenever someone like you or I would go and say, fix my television. Mm. And so you'd put in your zip code and you would see a list of TV repairmen who could uh, fix your TV. And my job was to get TV guys to TV repairmen to sign up for this site. And it was free for them to sign up. And the only time they ever had to pay us was when we actually sent them a customer. And we could track that using this technology we developed that would scan the calls and giving a phone number, a unique phone number that would register that we knew it was a call driven by us. So they would, uh, a consumer would go on, they would find a television repair guy, and then they would call this special number that we provided. It would go right to the TV guy. And if he booked a job, we would take a commission. And I actually ended up doing that for 11 other lines of business, things like podiatrists, optometrists, chiropractors, auto mechanics, auto glass repair guys, all these different types of businesses. And that was really where I learned how to sell. And I created kind of this almost Mad Lib style process where you could sub in, you know, transmission repairs for bunion removal and still have great success. Mm. And after doing that for a while, they said, Hey, Adam, you're pretty good at this. Can you teach people how to sell? And I said, yeah, that sounds great. And so I worked with my VP of sales. We had 25 sellers on the floor at the time and we were hiring really quickly. And I helped grow that team from 25 to about 95 um, in just under a year. So it was, it was a great experience. It was a great company. Yex ended up kind of splitting off and doing some other things. And then they went public. And today, you know, they're a billion dollar public company. Uh, but that was really how I got my start and uh, how I learned most of the things that I know today. And how big was the team at the time? Um, it was eight. I was the eighth hire. It was actually, um, so I was the fourth salesperson. Uh, I started with three other people. Uh, two of them were salespeople, and one of them was a uh, client operations person. And I was salesperson number four. And your job when you joined was to get TV repairmen onto the platform, right? So as a matter of fact, my job when I joined was to get gyms on a website called gymticket.com. And after a month of doing that and having a lot of success, they were like, hey, we want you to launch this new website, tvrepairman.com. And I said, yeah, let's do it. So how Yex works, they basically get these domains, these these websites, and they it's like they're like landing pages for Yex, right? Yeah. And then your goal is to make sure there's enough supply to match the demand that yes, people are searching all the people for. coming and looking for television repair. Um, that's exactly right. And then they ended up splintering that business, calling it Felix, and then selling Felix to IAC, where it still exists today under the Home Advisor brand. Right. And IAC, they own pretty much everything. Match.com, all of it. Um, so so how, why were you so good at this? Like, what made you, and what did you do to become great at this job? 
Yeah, so... Uh, and, yeah, ha- and how were you finding, for example, gyms? And how were you finding these TV repairmen? Like, how, what, like what was your strategy around that? Sure, so um, we had a list of places that we would call. So I wasn't doing anything sneaky or special there. But I think one of the things um, from the beginning was I kind of intuitively had a knack at what to say and when to say it to get someone to buy. And for me, one of my first evolutions as a salesperson came when I didn't just say stuff because intuitively it felt good, um, but I started really being able to analyze what I was saying and understand the why behind everything that I would say to a customer, a potential customer. And from that, I was able to kind of, you know, create a training program around that where I, I felt, I think all of the best salespeople are very self-aware and they understand the reasons behind everything they do. And that's not just when they're selling to a potential client, but that's when they get up in the morning and why they decide to go to the gym and what car they drive and where they're going to go eat and how they interact with their friends. And I think the best salespeople are very self-aware. They understand the motivations behind doing that. And they can take a very analytical, logical, rational approach to that. And then once they understand themselves, they can start thinking about the people they're speaking to and try to understand them as well. And if you can understand someone's motivations and their desires, you can start to think about, okay, well, if I can lead them down a path that will fulfill those things while also uh, you know, achieving my goal of making the sale, I'm probably going to be in a pretty good position. And that was, that was kind of my big first evolution was the ability to understand why I was doing the things I was doing and then teach that back to you know, a bunch of new college grads. Um, and help ramp up the X sales team. And then obviously I was able to take a lot of those skills and continue to improve them and, and uh, evolve them at single platform. So ultimately when you, when you, you know, speak to a potential client, you're trying to understand what their motivations are first, right? Yeah. I think, um, you know, people tend to do what's always in their best interest. And the thing to recognize is that um, what, might be in their best interest can also be in your best interest as well. And as a salesperson, it's, it's kind of my job to articulate value in a way that makes it seem like you're getting exactly what you want. And hopefully you truly are. Um, but I'm also getting what I want, right? So yes, I'm selling you this product that's going to be amazing for your business, but I'm, I'm doing that because I have a quota to meet, right? And so I think understanding that and recognizing that that's okay um, is a very powerful thing. And then overlapping those two circles, what I want with what you want to find that solution forward um, is ultimately how you can be very, very successful at, at sales. And you ultimately found this to be true because you were rinsing and repeating the same approach for every new channel you were given? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, we, we went in and we launched all these different types of businesses and it was very successful um, and, you know, allowed the company to be sold. And, um, you know, I think the reason that approach worked is because it was a sound process with uh, a very clear understanding of the objective and the why behind it. And we effectively were able to teach that to our sales team. Yeah, I mean, it definitely worked because from employee number eight to IPO is a pretty big deal. Kind of like glazed over that. And you were there up until IPO, right? No. So I was only at Yext for a couple of years. I would say the real win story is, is probably at Single Platform. And at Single Platform, I was part of the founding executive team and then really joined to run all things sales and spent the first nine months by myself, cold calling every day, trying to figure out a scalable, repeatable process. Uh, and then after those nine months, we, we found that process and started hiring people um, and I think probably what I'm most proud of is we were able to build an incredible team, an incredible company. We went from zero to $25 million in revenue. We went from myself to 115 people on the sales side. Um, and in the middle of it all, we were acquired by Constant Contact for $100 million. So, wow. um, you know, Yex was a great story. It was a great place to start my career. But um, for me, the probably my biggest professional win was definitely a, during my time in Single Platform. So what was Single Platform? What did they do? I think it was kind of similar to Yex in the sense that it was t- trying to service small businesses. Is that correct? Yeah, it was definitely similar in certain ways. Uh, we were selling to restaurants and giving them a way to update their menu information online. So the number one thing that diners want to see when they look for a restaurant is their menu. Um, but before Single Platform, the only place you could view a menu 
was typically on a customer's own, or excuse me, on a restaurant's own individual website. And what single platform would do was go to all of the other places that people would look for restaurants like Yelp and Urban Spoon and Foursquare and Facebook and Google and Yahoo. And we would distribute that menu content. And in our back end, restaurants could update that whenever they wanted. And then it would push out to all of those websites, including their own. And uh, that was a, a great value prop for restaurants. And, um, you know, we, we signed up thousands upon thousands and, and the company was very successful. It is very successful, still exists today. Yeah. So obviously you were sales person number one, right? So what were some of the challenges in trying to sell restaurants? Because historically, small restaurants, I'm thinking about, you know, the small Chinese store, family owned they're not really into technology. Like, how did you overcome certain barriers like that? Yeah, you know, um, with a lot of phone calls. Uh, <laughs> this was 2010. And, you know, thank goodness that most places at this point did have a computer inside of their restaurant. But they weren't really focused on digital the way they are today. Mm. And emailing these restaurants wasn't how you were going to get in touch with them. It was pure, raw horsepower via the phone. And we made an awful lot of phone calls. Uh, we had a pretty compelling value proposition, I think. And we never gave up. And I think, you know, one of the early challenges was just finding that business model that would be both something we could sell and also something that would uh, make sense from an economic perspective. And eventually we were able to come across that charging restaurants $250 a year to update this information. Um, but, you know, that, that was a long nine months. Uh, we, mm. we signed up a lot of restaurants, but we weren't in a place where we could say this is a business that's going to make sense. Uh, but then we figured it out and, you know, started building a team. And, and again, the rest is history. How did you stay motivated during that time? I mean, especially joining a, a startup, right? You're doing sales. Like, how long did it take you to get, like, the first sale, for example? And, like, at any point were you, you know, like, disheartened? Do you think this is not going to work? No one wants to use our tech. This is not working. Like, how did you, like, push through? Sure. So um, I, I joined Single Platform through my good friend, Kenny Herman. Kenny introduced me to the CEO, um, the founder, Wiley Cirilli and Wiley and I got together and it was one of those situations where you just sit down with someone and you click and you say, yes, this is, I believe in this. I believe in this person. This is the kind of leader I want to work for. This is the type of business I want to build. And it was great because Wiley looked at me and he said, listen, if you can figure out how to sell this thing over the phone, we'll build the company and the team around you. And I was 24 years old and I, I said, oh my gosh, that, that sounds incredible. Like yeah. absolutely sign me up. And in my first week, I actually ended up bringing on a 20 location pizza chain in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, that that was one of the more fun sales I've ever made because this new sales guy comes in. Is he going to be able to do anything? We don't know. And out of the gate to bring on a 20 location spot. Uh, I remember Kenny saying, you know, looking around saying, man, this is this really makes me look good. And it was, it was, it was a fun experience. Um, so, you know, how did I stay motivated? I, it was through our leadership it was through our team. It was through the, the family we were building and all of us were working so hard, grinding towards this common goal. And I didn't want to let my teammates down. And, uh, you know, that was kind of the, the inspiration for me to keep going. Um, but I also, I, I felt really confident that I was going to figure it out. And, and, and I think part of that, again, comes back to leadership. Wiley really instilled that confidence inside of me and said, listen, we're going to keep working at this. We're going to keep hammering away. We're going to keep getting better. And I feel like, you know, I feel like we're going to figure it out. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, we did. You know, in sales, you hear it all the time, super high turnover, 30, 60, 90 days of if you're not bringing anything in or not moving the needle enough, like you're out the doors. So Wiley must have really believed in you to give you kind of like that liberty to last nine months to figure it out. Yeah, he did. Um, I'm so lucky that we were in a position where he never pressured me to try and hire people before we were ready to try and grow faster. Um, we really took an approach of let's get this right. Let's make this a coin operated machine. Let's get that process in place and then let's start to scale. And then I think that's part of the reason we were able to grow so quickly because once we did have it figured out, it was really that coin operating machine. It was really plug and play. Um, and you know, that let us go from zero to a hundred sales reps in, you know, less than four years.
So I want to switch gears a bit now and, and drill down a bit more on kind of like the sales process in a general sense. So like what are some of the key attributes it takes to become a great salesperson? Sure. So um, I get this question a lot when I'm interviewing salespeople. You know, they always ask you, what do you look for? What are you looking for on your team? And it's the same three things uh, that it's been for me for the past 10 years. And that's uh, mental, uh, mental investment, internal motivation, flexible and adaptable and coachable. Um, those are kind of the first three things that I look for. So you've got to be internally motivated. Um, no one, I'm never going to run a team where we're, you know, coming around and we're saying, Hey, make another phone call, dial the phone, get on the horn. Like that's just not the kind of environment that anyone wants to be a part of. You've got to wake up with that internal motivation every day. Mm. Um, at startups, you do have to be flexible and adaptable. And I think that, you know, sometimes people who want that really defined structure where it's like clocking at nine, leave at five, that's just not the right environment. And then I mentioned earlier that the best salespeople I've worked with are always the ones who are most self-aware. They're also the ones who are the most coachable. Um, they're the ones who will make all the mistakes, but never the same mistake twice. Mm. So they'll take that feedback that they get from whoever they're getting feedback from, and they'll apply it in, in what I call almost real time. And that next phone call, they'll be working on that stuff. So I think those are those are three of the things, right? You got to be uh, internally motivated. You got to be flexible and adaptable. Uh, you got to be coachable. And then I think on the other side of it, uh, something that we came up with at Single Platform, three things that that we bring to work every day, which you know are, are somewhat similar: uh, hard work, mental investment, and a positive mental attitude. And uh, that was what we would preach every single day. And those are three things that are in a salesperson's control. And I think one of the most difficult things about sales is it's one of the only functions that relies on someone outside of the company to be successful. Mm. So I have to use my words and I have to use my presentation skills to articulate value in a way that takes someone who by default didn't want the thing that I had and convince them that it is actually something that they want. And that's really difficult. And sometimes you have to rely on this other person and that can make you feel like you're not in control. And when you feel like you're not in control, it can be very difficult um, to stay focused. It can be very difficult to stay positive. So what I wanted us to do was have a team where we felt like we were in control and coming to work every day with hard work, coming to work every day with a positive mental attitude, coming to work every day and being mentally invested. Those were three things that we could control. And I can I can dig in a little bit on those. You know, you've got to make the calls. Hard work beats talent when talent fails to work hard. It doesn't matter how talented you are at sales. If you're not out there working hard, someone else is working harder mm. and they're going to end up selling more than you. Yeah. Um, you've got to be mentally invested. So sometimes as a salesperson, you can start to run on autopilot and it becomes routine. But the thing about it is it might be routine for you. But for the person on the other end of the phone or the person on the other end of the table or the other per other side of the room, um, it's not routine for them. It might be the very first time they've ever heard anything about your company. And you owe it to them to make sure that you are giving them that A-plus experience. Mm. And I think sometimes we tend to forget that or we assume that it's not going to go well or we assume it is going to go well and we get sloppy, we get lazy, we stop being mentally invested. So you've got to be mentally invested. We said laser fucking focused at single platform. That was how we talked about it. <laughs> and then the last piece, the positive mental attitude, you know, our energy is contagious. When you're in a good mood, people can tell when you're in a bad mood, people can tell and that, you know, affects the people around you. Yeah. And while being positive might not necessarily always lead to making more sales, I have never in my selling career seen someone make less sales with a smile on their face. And there's an incredible TED talk called The Happiness Advantage from Sean Aker. He wrote a book called The Happiness Advantage as well. And that was a TED talk that we watched in every single training class that I led at Single Platform. Because that talk about positive mental attitude, when, our, when we are positive, our brains actually perform better than when we are negative, neutral, or stressed. Salespeople are actually better. Dopamine, which is released when our brains are positive, actually opens up the learning centers of our brain. So, you know, putting that smile on your face, smiling through it, tricking your brain into being positive, that has downstream effects that, that really help salespeople be successful. So hard work, mental investment, positive mental attitude. You know, if you bring those three things to the table every single day, those three things that are in your control, 
you're on the path to success for sure. And in terms of like, you know, you've historically worked in B2B spaces. I mean, I know you did have a B2C product and we'll talk about that shortly. Um, but in the B2B environment, you know, one thing that I hear from startups or people working in the B2B environment when it comes to sales is the sales cycle. Like, what should I be doing if something is a six-month sales cycle? Like, how do I, can I speed that up? Is anything in my own control? You know, you mentioned control earlier. How do you stay motivated? How do you have that positive mindset when it's such a long sales cycle? Yeah, so listen, if it's a six-month sales cycle and you know that, then that sounds great, right? Um, the only time you shouldn't be positive is when you don't achieve the outcome that you want or things don't go according to plan. One thing that I often talk about with salespeople is anytime you delegate, anytime you leave it to someone else, like a decision maker at a company you're trying to sell to, uh, you are making it less likely you achieve the outcome that you want because no one is ever going to be more motivated to get the outcome that you want than you. Mm -hmm. So you want to put yourself in a position where you're in control. And sometimes that just looks like making sure you have next steps, making sure you have buy-in from the people you're working with, uh, setting a timeline that you both agree to, setting expectations. Really, life is all about just managing expectations. Um, you know, the joke I always say is if, you know, you and I are sitting next to each other and I say, Philip, I'm going to, you know, punch you in the face in five seconds and I start counting down from five and then I go to punch you and you don't move your head out of the way. Well, that's on you, my man. <laughs> I told you exactly what was going to happen. I think sales is sometimes very similar where, you know, we say, OK, um, I'm going to, you know, touch base with you uh, or, or let's let's, uh, you know, sync up next week uh, to get, you know, you and your other stakeholder in the room. Uh, how does that sound? That sounds great. Um, okay. And if I haven't heard from you uh, or haven't gotten that document back by day X, um, you know, I'll just reach out uh, later next week. Is that okay? Yes. And now I have every right to go and reach out to that person and follow up with that person. I'm not being annoying. I'm not being a pest. I'm merely following through on exactly what I said and you agreed was going to happen. And I think that's something that some salespeople struggle with sometimes. They, they don't feel comfortable setting those very clear, very rigid next steps, very clear, very rigid expectations that put them in the position to be able to move the deal forward. And what ends up happening is things stall out because it starts moving on the decision maker's timeline. And that's when it can feel like you're powerless. It can be frustrating. You get annoyed. And it really just, again, comes back to making sure that you stay in control, even when you are relying on other people uh, to kind of fulfill next steps. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, I can definitely testify to that. I mean, sometimes it, I think it's just a case of, like you said, people feeling like they're pestering, they're following up, they don't want to nag the person. But in actual fact, you're just not top of mind for some people. And they might be interested, but it's up to you to really lead the charge on that deal 100 so how should startups approach the sales process from day one that's a great question i think you know obviously there's a lot of variables but the biggest thing is just start um, i see a lot of teams go deep into the theory try to get it perfect coming out of the gate and the the simple truth of it is you're never going to get it perfect coming out of the gate it's always going to be wrong it is an iterative process and it really comes down to how quickly can you make those changes and the most important thing to do is to plant your flag in the ground and say okay here's where we're going to start let's see how that goes and then just be open to being flexible and adaptable um, it, you don't have to solve this on day one but you can't start to solve it until you start interacting with customers. And I see people tend to shy away from that or get nervous about it. If you blow through 100 customers, it's not going to matter in the long run. You are calling thousands and thousands of people you are presenting to, even if you're just going after Fortune 500 companies, taking a sample size of 20 and trying to reach out and get feedback from them. Um, is, is not a bad thing. And that was one of the very impactful things I did at Single Platform. When I was testing out pitches and scripts and models, um, I, would, I would go in and I would try to sell them. And, you know, they would sometimes, a lot of times, they'd say no. And I would say, okay. Like after I went back and, you know, tried to handle their objections a couple times, it was very clear we were not making the sale. I would stop and I would change gears and I'd say, okay, listen, um, I'm, I'm not even trying to sell you. We're, we're kind of just getting started with this. Um, does this idea even make sense to you? Mm. Does this, uh, you know, pushing your menu information everywhere, is that something that you think would be valuable? 
Like, do we agree that just the fundamental thing that I'm trying to sell, is there any value here? Would you pay 10 cents for this? Would you pay a dollar for this? Would you pay $50 for this? Oh, well, I wouldn't pay $50. Okay, cool. So we're saying that there is some sort of value, but the value is between $1 and $50. And then I would take that feedback. What, you know, what would be valuable to you? What are the things kind of in this vein that you feel like would be worthwhile? And I think that's a very, very, very valuable exercise Mm. for startups to go through with their potential clients in the beginning and asking them and being vulnerable and saying, listen, I get it. Tell me that this isn't even valuable. Tell, and then what they'll say is, oh, yeah, I don't think that the, you know, the menu is really important. And it's like, oh, holy crap. Well, we're just disagreeing on facts now because every study tells us that the menu is indeed the most important thing that people look for. Uh, the number one thing people they want to see when they're researching a restaurant. So that that's just simply not true. And, and now it's my job to use the challenger sales methodology teach, tailor, take control and explain that that is actually something that you should care about. But really, it's just I need to figure out again, coming back to those overlapping circles, what's in it for them? How is this going to help their business? What words am I going to use in what order to articulate value in a compelling way that makes them say, "Okay, this is something I want to take a look at. And you got to talk to your customers and understand why they don't feel that way if you're not getting that feedback of, yes, I want to buy. So someone like that, and you disagree on the facts, so conventional wisdom would say, that's not sell, don't try and sell to the non-believers, sell to the agnostics, right? So would you not just walk away? Oh, no, I, I, I never walk away from a fight. Um, <laughs> I, I love getting in there. Um, a big challenger sales guy, teach, tailor, take control, and I think that's an opportunity to teach. Um, most clients are used to running a sales process themselves. They go at their pace. Um, there is a traditional, you know, salesperson, uh, buyer relationship where the salesperson is almost subservient Mm. to the buyer. And I just don't think that that's the way you should think about it. Um, when we were reaching out to businesses to tell them about single platform, that was the best phone call they were going to get all week. Thank goodness. They were so lucky that they got a call from us because we're going to help their business grow. And that was the mindset and the attitude that all of our salespeople had. And it came from the top and it was very, very effective. So, um, you know, I would love to have a conversation about the facts uh, because that is an unquestionable place where I feel very comfortable that we'll come away from that conversation with a positive outcome um, by using logic and reason and eventually breaking it down to get to a rational place. Uh, But yes, many, many decision makers, many buyers are not rational. And it's our job to use logic and facts to teach them and help them get over to a place where they can start behaving in a rational manner and come to the logical conclusion that they should buy. Yeah, that's good. I mean, you advise a number of startups on the sales process. That's your thing. So what have been some of the most common mistakes you've seen startups make? I mean, I know you alluded to some just now in terms of acting quite subservient uh, to their clients, but are there any else that come to mind? Yeah. So I think the, the biggest thing, I came up with something called the minimum selling method. So uh, most companies today kind of go through this process where they have a product and they hire a salesperson and they don't really teach the salesperson how to sell. They just kind of teach them how to talk about the product. And so the salesperson gets on the phone with a potential client and they start telling them all this information about the product. And then they stop talking and they stop talking and they hope that the buyer on the other end of the line is going to say, Oh my gosh, Adam, that was so much great information that you just shared. I would like to buy. Now, in reality, that that typically doesn't happen. (laughs) So the salesperson thinks in their head, oh, man, I must not have shared enough valuable information. I better share some more info. And they start talking again and they share more and more info. And then they stop again and they hope that they get that response that the, the buyer wants to buy, but they don't. And they continue this process a couple of times until they run out of information to share. And the buyer says, "Okay, well, that was a lot of information. (laughs) Um, Let me think about it and I'll get back to you. And that's the worst thing you can hear. Um, But they do at that point truly need to think about it because the more information I share with you, the more complex the decision making process becomes. Mm. If I give you a very little bit of information, it's very easy for you to make a quick decision. That decision might not be the answer that I want, but it's easy for you to make that decision. 
If I give you a lot of information, it becomes more complex to make that decision. And so what I noticed was companies weren't teaching people how to sell. They were just teaching people how to talk about their product. And I came up with this thing called the minimum selling method. And the minimum selling method is pretty simple. Uh, the job of the salesperson is not to share information. The job of a salesperson is to close. Now, in order to close, a certain amount of information needs to be shared. Your goal as a salesperson is to share the minimum amount of information while still getting the customer to buy. And that is a, a somewhat, when I, when I go in and, and I came up with this after consulting for you know probably a dozen companies and seeing literally the same pattern over and over again, Sometimes this fakes people by surprise because they're like, wait a second. No, it's my job to explain the product. And it's not. As a salesperson, it's just my job to get the sale. Now, I do have to explain certain things about the product. If I just call you up and I say, hey, Phil, my name's Adam. I'm calling, I'm calling from company X. Um, would you like to buy? You're going to say, <laughs> absolutely not, and hang up the phone. Yeah. Or maybe if I'm lucky, you're going to say, what's company X? And I say, company X is a, uh, you know, we make the best piece of software to help your business make the most amount of money. Um, what's your credit card number? And you're going to say, well, wait, 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 what does it cost? And then you're going to have all of these other basic questions. And I don't want you to ask me those basic questions. I want to get ahead of that and tell you the answers to those basic questions before you ask. And that is effectively what becomes that information set that you share. It are, are those things that everyone is going to ask you every time. But, you know, I tell companies that you're going to have 100% of the information. You're probably only going to need to share you know, let's call it 25 to 30% of that to make the sale. Mm. Now, the trick is that 20% of that, 25 to 30% is going to be the same every single time. And the best salespeople, what they're able to do is think dynamically and take from that knowledge base of all the information, the key points and key things that are specific to that business that will really push things over the edge. Uh, but all in all, my job is to get out of there as quickly as possible with the sale and the more information I share, that doesn't necessarily always correlate to the uh, a higher likelihood of closing. And I think that idea is sometimes a, a new one to salespeople and even sales leaders. I mean, that's a massive one for me right now. My mind is blown, absolutely. Salespeople, well, they're always told the more information you can communicate, the better you sound and the more likely someone is to convert. So you're saying you only need to, to share 20 five to 30% of that. How do you even know what that information is? I think it's the information that the majority of your potential <clears throat> customers are asking you, right? They're going to want to know why this is good for their business. So it's like the, FA, the know, FAQs. How much it costs. They're going to want to know uh, who else is using it. They're going to want to know why they should sign up or whatever it is. Those are all the things that, that go into your pitch. That's your standard kind of walkthrough of whatever your product is. Um, and then there's going to be additional things on top of that. You know, I think of uh, decision makers, I think of sales as kind of like a, a lock and key game, right? So every decision maker is a lock and uh, we are the key and it's our job to figure out which key we need to be. And when you start in sales, you're not a very good locksmith. You only have a couple keys on your belt. Um, but as you encounter more and more situations, you figure out how to open more and more locks. And the, the reason I like that analogy so much is every key is, is kind of similar, right? They all look a little bit in the same family. They go up, they go down, they go across. Um, but every key is also unique and it's a little bit different. And I think it's very similar with sales. The majority of what we're going to do is the same. But then there's those little pieces that are different. And it's all about those little pieces that will open or close the door. And so, um, you know, I'm trying to get out there. Uh, get out of that conversation as quickly as I can. I want to share the information I need to share in a compelling fashion to get you excited. Um, but it's not my job to tell you everything and anything about what the product can do. It's my job to tell you enough about what the product can do so that you can't wait to buy it. And I, again, I think that is a, uh, sometimes a different mindset than how people approach these conversations. Does this depend on the price of the product? You know, do you take the same approach if you're selling a product that costs, for example, $250 a year or a month or $5,000 a month? Like, is it the same approach across the board? I think fundamentally it's a similar approach. I think how you execute that approach may be a little different. Um, the information set that you can draw from 
for a million dollar deal is probably going to be a lot larger mm. than the information set you're working with uh, for a $50 deal. Um, when you're going into complex enterprise sales with multiple stakeholders where many pieces of the business are being touched, you do need to educate all of those people about all of those things. Um, but again, the principles remain where you only need to educate them enough for them to be excited to buy. Um, you don't, and, and sometimes maybe that does require going through every nook and cranny, but it's been my experience that that's simply not the case. Um, and oftentimes the buy is being made, um, you know, as much for emotional reasons as it is for rational reasons, um, which, you know, implies that there is some, uh, emotion you can create by taking that challenger sales mentality of teaching, tailoring and controlling that sales process. And on top of executing on the MSM model, uh, minimum sellable method, what else can startups do to set themselves up for success from a practical standpoint? So like what tools can they use or can you talk about anything that has made you more effective and more efficient in your role as a salesperson? Sure. Uh, I think, you know, Salesforce is always a good one. Uh, most companies that don't start with Salesforce typically end up there. And I always say that those costs are not going to be why your business succeeds or fails. So there's no like, you know, you might as well start with the right stuff. Um, I think hiring is really important. Um, you know, I some people say hire slow, fire fast. I actually think it's hire fast, fire fast mm. um, in the beginning. You just need people in there and uh, you, you want that good, solid, really strong A-plus player. Um, but don't necessarily look for that unicorn because there's still so much more to prove. Uh, never hire just one person. Always hire at least two so you can compare them against each other. You want to know if it's your process that's broken or if it's the person executing that process. Very difficult to understand that if there's only one person. Um, and I think... Uh, you know, really making a commitment to culture from the beginning. Uh, I know that's not a tool, but uh, I, I, I know there's a ton being spent on sales enablement and sales operations and things like that. Uh, but for me, it's, it's really about putting in that work and actually engaging with customers and selling. And if you can do that well, um, that's far more valuable than any tool that you could plug in um, to, your, to your CRM. That's awesome. I wonder what tools wrapping up now, Adam, and ask a few rapid fire questions, which I always ask all guests that come on the show. So sure. what has or who has been your biggest inspiration? Uh, biggest inspiration is Will Smith. I'm a huge, huge Will Smith guy. Um, I call him the best rapper, actor, uh, alive. And I really love the way that he thinks about life. Uh, he's recently gotten to Instagram. And yeah his posts on responsibility and fault and fear uh, are all so incredible. And he's got a, another video that I would show to all of our new hires. Uh, Will Smith shares his secrets to success and it's just great. Uh, you know, it's unrealistic to think that, you know, you could walk into a room, flip a switch and have a light turn on. Thank goodness Edison didn't think so. It's unrealistic to think that you could bend metal and fly it over the ocean. But thank goodness the Wright brothers didn't think so. And I think he's just got a really great approach to life. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he is truly an inspiration for me. Yeah, that's good. Um, favorite podcast? Uh, favorite podcast? The only podcast I listen to right now, Pardon My Take by Barstool Sports. Ah, nice. Uh, favorite blog? Uh, I'm a big fan of Saster. I think Jason Lemkin is is one of the smartest sales leaders um, in the game. And uh, he both tweets and uh, writes great, great insights about what it takes to make a successful sales organization. Saster, that's with Harry Stavings as well, right? Um, I think maybe he's a contributor, yeah. Yeah. Uh, favorite book? Uh, Harry Potter. Oh, that's why you're, you're friends with Derek, I guess. Derek. Uh, yes, Derek. <laughs> well, for sure. Yeah. Uh, favorite Instagram account? Obviously, Will Smith, I guess. Uh, Will Smith is a great Instagram account. Um, 
I'm trying to think what else do we constantly share. I like a lot of the food stuff and a lot of the travel stuff. Pretty basic answers, but those are good too. Yeah. Uh, what do you wish you could do that you currently can't do? Oh, man. Great question. I wish I could play any sport at a professional level. Mm, I haven't had that one before. That's good. Um, what's the advice you would give to your 21-year-old self? Um, I would tell myself, don't ever slow down. Um, if you had $100 in your favorite city, what would you spend it on? Food. No question. Great meal. What's the one thing startups should ignore in the early days? Ooh. Uh, I get, here's a, the haters. You have to do it. <laughs> You got to ignore the haters. There's definitely some value in understanding why people don't like what you're doing. Um, but you have to have a rabid, uh, unwavering belief that you are going to change the world. Yeah, that's good. And I guess, what is what does the future look like for, for Adam right now? I mean, do, we, do you have a book coming? You know, I really like this, this, minimum, sell, this minimum selling method. I think that's a, that's a book right there. Uh, I don't have a book coming. You know, I work with tons of startups, uh, both as a consultant and advisor. Um, I love digging into sales problems and trying to figure out how to cut that key to open that lock. Um, and just looking at companies and, and, and helping sales teams move faster. That's awesome. Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was awesome. Um, where can people find you if they want to get in contact with you? Uh, they can always find me on LinkedIn. They can always find me on Twitter at Adam Liebman. Uh, that's my handle on Instagram as well. And feel free to drop me an email, adamj.liebman at gmail.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Just wanted to say another huge thank you to Adam for coming on the show and dropping those bombs of sales advice on us. I know you guys got so much out of that because I certainly did. As always, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and leave us a review on the Apple Podcasting app. They honestly do go a long way. Until next time, keep grinding.